Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. You know, I, I love uh, the Christmas season. I love seeing our kids on the platform here. I love the, the, the feels, the sounds, the tastes of Christmas. And as a Gen X kid growing up in Canada, nothing said Christmas was coming more than the TV Christmas specials. Now, those who might be that generation, you kind of know what I mean. Like, kids, those who are younger, just so you know, we didn't have Netflix, there was no YouTube, there was no internet. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And so that meant that we had to wait all year for the Christmas specials to come on. I think because they were so exclusive to that moment, kind of built a lot of magic around them because you couldn't access them the rest of the year. So we'd wait, the commercials would come on, and, our, and me and my sisters and brothers, there's six of us, we gather, we get in our pajamas, we gather around the TV, and some of our favorites, we love Frosty the Snowman. We love that one. Uh, a snowman that got a magical hat on his head and he came to life. Believable? Absolutely. Then there was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, you know, born with an electric snout. And all the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names, but who's laughing now? I mean, when Santa's about to cancel Christmas because he can't get through the big storm, Rudolph comes through with his nose so bright, guiding the sleigh. So all the kids had toys at night. Do you remember? No? Believable? Oh, oh, what about this one? This was my favorite. A year without Christmas. And Santa's sick. And Mrs. Claus is on the job, though. She's going to figure out a way to get through. And we're introduced to these two characters, Heat Miser and Snow Miser. They're brothers. They're brothers, and they control the weather, the snow and the, the heat, the sun, obviously. And there's this tremendous song that our, my brothers and I would sing, that they sing in this little video. We would sing it all Christmas season. Uh, do you want me to sing it? I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but if you're online in the chat room, we're going to drop a link to the video of that song so you can watch it later. Like, not now, later, because we're talking right now. So watch it. Yeah, later, later. And the rest of you can go and Google it yourself. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's interesting when you look at Christmas, you know, and all the feels, and I liked all these things. There was so much joy and fun around them, warmth around them. You know, a, a red-nosed reindeer, a magic snowman, uh, you know, the, the, three, the three weathermen, or the two weathermen singing. Uh, it added some feels to Christmas, but had little to nothing to do with the Christmas story. The first Christmas was fantastical and miraculous in nature. It was riveting, a virgin birth, angels singing, the Savior had come. But that Christmas was also littered not just with peace and joy and love, but with fear and hardship and even darkness. In fact, I, I want to really encourage you to come to our, our Christmas Eve gathering uh, and invite someone. Join us online. Invite someone to join you for this great experience. Pastor Jessica and I are going to explore the real Christmas story together. We're going to unpack it in community. You're not going to want to miss it. I know it's going to be very meaningful for all of us who come and gather on that Christmas Eve gathering together. 
But that first Christmas and that Christmas experience, we're going to explore today, as Pastor Keith mentioned earlier, a theme in the Christmas story that we don't often explore, and that being doubt. And I want you to know that there's plenty of room for doubt in the Christmas story. Don't believe me? Turn if you have a Bible, or if you don't, we'll we'll show some scripture on the screen here, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Here's how the Christmas story unfolds. It goes this way. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement, say it with me, quietly. What's going on here? You know, when you read this passage, automatically we're ushered into the realm of the miraculous. A virgin birth? Hard to believe. You find it hard to believe? Can you imagine you're in good company? Joseph, Jesus earthly father found it very difficult to believe. In fact, I always wonder, and Pastor Jessica teased it out a couple of weeks in one of the messages, I wonder what that conversation went like between Mary and Joseph. I just really wonder. I play that over and over in my head. I wonder if Joseph looked at Mary and said, listen, you look incredibly sincere, but I cannot believe you did not have sex with somebody else. You broke the moral law before God and you broke your promise to me. I mean, can we forgive Joseph that the idea of a miraculous conception was a little beyond his realm of belief? Are you you prepared to forgive him of that? (laughs) That he's in this place and space that many of us find ourselves, a place of doubt. In verse 19, though, it's very interesting what it says about Joseph. It says he was a righteous man, meaning he honored the moral law of God. It means he did not wink at sin or just dismiss sin. That wasn't an uncommon approach in that culture, in the ancient culture, because it was a patriarchal society, and it was a deeply conservative, traditional society. So that combination meant that would be a value that he would hold highly in his life. What is very uncommon about Joseph is how he responds to the situation. Very uncommon. Notice this. He's not self-righteous. Instead, it says that he did not want to disgrace her publicly. He decided to break the engagement quietly. He's not self-righteous, and he's not punitive. He he doesn't want to expose her, and he doesn't want to punish her. Now, remember, he thinks she's been unfaithful at this point. This is quite a man, very interesting. He lives in an incredible balance between being moral and moralistic, just and judgmental. If only more Christians, I'm picking on myself here, (laughs) were like Joseph. 30 plus years of pastoring, I've never seen anyone judged into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. I've just never seen anyone judged into it. I've experienced a beautiful thing called conviction at times where God's spirit, you know, alerts me that something I'm doing, thinking, or behaving in is somehow harming others, harming myself, or creating greater distance between me and God. That's a gift. But I've never seen someone come into the kingdom of God with finger wagging. I've just never seen that, experienced that. So Joseph responds very differently here. And he was ready to do this quietly. He wants to keep this on the download, but something happens. Let's keep reading. As he considered this, an angel, again, the miraculous, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, 
the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Oh, there's plenty of fertile soil for doubt in the Christmas story. Sometimes because we've heard it often or heard it early, you just kind of take these things and accept these things. But how beliefs are formed and what doubt, the doubt we experience in life is real for all of us. Doubt is when we experience something or see something that is incongruent or inconsistent with what we believe. Doubt is difficult. Now, before we jump into what doubt is, we need to doubt, jump into what your beliefs are. Uh, if you have any beliefs, can you just raise your hand? Yeah, this should be all of us, right? We've all formed beliefs. Now, there's two ways we form beliefs. We like to think, I like to think I form beliefs based solely on my thinking, just solely on my thinking. I'm rational, I'm data-based, I'm, I'm completely objective and fair, always. Most of us love to think that our beliefs that we formed are just from our thinking. But sociologists, and I think you'll understand this in a moment, it's not just your thinking, it's all through, through, so also through your personal experiencing. It's our thinking and our experiencing that forms our beliefs. In other words, if you believe in racial equality, not that everyone is born the same, people are born disadvantaged in life in different places, people have different levels of privilege and all kinds of things were born into this structure. But that humanity at its core, every human being is of equal value, if you believe that. But if you meet maybe only two or three people from a certain cultural and nationality group, and let's say those same two or three people, they're just not nice to you. They're a little unkind. They might be difficult, inconsiderate, rude. Maybe they were cruel towards you. I know this about you. Rationally and in your thinking, you might believe in racial equality, but there is a, now a visceral, negative, personal experience attached to it. And all of a sudden, although you believe in racial equality, they become those people. You know what I mean? Your experience influences your thinking. Your thinking experiences, influences your, your, your experience. See, you're not just a robot. You're not a computer. You're not just a rational being. We are social, personal beings as well as rational beings. That's why our beliefs should keep developing. The things I believed when I was a 22-year-old pastor have grown. Why? New information new experiences and perspectives, and so it grows and matures over time. My understanding of my thinking as a white middle-aged male has changed drastically. Why? Through exposure and education and thinking. It's changed a lot of how I view the world and my life. Your, your beliefs continue to develop over time. Now, here's the problem. Many of us, especially in faith circles, we put our beliefs in a deep vault and we lock it at a Sunday school level. Early on, we're taught some things, we put it in there, and we lock it up. And if anyone opens up, it, it's a threat to us because we lock that down. Now, there's a few things in my vault. I, I came through a long season of, with my doubts and everything clarifying that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he came in human flesh, and that he died for the sins of all humanity. And his sacrifice makes it possible for me to be connected to with God. I had that in a vault. 
There are other things that aren't in the vault because they're not fully formed. I'm not fully, uh, scripture doesn't fully share everything around it. So I'm in process and I'm maturing and developing with time. I've often been challenged with this. I probably shared it here. I heard a pastor say it years ago. I remember him once saying, are there any beliefs that your grandparents or your parents or your great-grandparents believed that you're kind of embarrassed they believed now? I'm the only one with bearing parents like that? And then he turned and he said, just know that you hold beliefs that your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren are going to be embarrassed that you believe too. We need to keep maturing and developing, but we need to anchor to something. We need an anchor point, and for me, that anchor point is Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means to explore our doubts and what that looks like. The fact is, with doubts, anybody and everybody can have doubts. In the story, Jesus, Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father, he doubts. If you go throughout the pages of scripture, the patriarch of the Judaism, the father of many nations, Abraham, was filled with many doubts. Uh, your pastor has had doubts and has doubts. And so does every significant spiritually mature believer you find in scripture. They have pockets and moments of doubt. Doubt is not evil in itself. Here's the second truth, that doubts can be both positive and negative. They can be both positive and negative. Here's the problem with doubt. In religious circles, to religious people, doubt tends to be a negative thing. And many followers of Jesus and others, they, they fear voicing any sort of doubts. In secular mindsets, often doubts are applauded as some sort of intellectual elitism, that you're being intellectually robust because you're skeptical and you doubt all things. The Bible doesn't hold either of these perspectives. The Bible doesn't look at doubt as overly positive or overly negative, in fact. It's not all good, it's not all bad. I like to think of doubt, I've never had vertigo, but I've had many friends who've had vertigo, and if you've had it, I'm sorry to remind you of it. <laughs> but I, I feel doubts are like belief vertigo. You kind of lose your step thing and certainty. There's a gap between what your mind is seeing and experiencing and where your feet are going. And so with that, if you're unsure where to put your foot, there's uncertainty. And that's what doubt is. Doubt is when your beliefs come up against something that is incongruent, looks different, feels different, and is experienced different than what you believe. There's, there's a sense of belief vertical happening. The Greek word in the New Testament, what is written in for doubt, is dysikos, and it means two psyches or double vision. And it's like having double vision. It's disconcerting. It's difficult. And yet the Bible teaches us over and over that doubt can both destroy a belief and doubt can also grow a belief. It can destroy or grow a belief. It's not, it's not negative. It's not necessarily positive. It's like money. <laughs> Money's not evil. We can use it for great evil. It can control us or we can control it. The same is the case with doubt. There's a famous science, scientist, one of the first emerging modern scientists about 200 years ago. His name was Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon said this, if you begin with certainties, you will end up in doubts. If you begin with doubts, you'll end up in certainty. And what he means by this is, if you just begin with certainties, you'll stop asking questions. You won't develop. You won't grow. You can't. But if you begin with doubts, you have the possibility at landing in places of certainty. It's where the idea of the scientific method came. 
And the scientific methods, I know I'm talking to many scientific people here, is to ask questions. It is to doubt, to drive you to greater understanding and new discoveries. It's all a part of that process. In the New Testament, there is a character that we often talk about when we talk about doubt, and it's Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. See, what had happened after Jesus died and rose from the grave, he shows up to his disciples, but, but Thomas misses the meeting. He didn't get the ghoul invite. He missed that meeting, and so, so when the disciples, his friends, said, hey, we saw Jesus, he's alive, he's like, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. In fact, he says it this way. He says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and put the finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hands into his side, I will never believe. What's Thomas looking for there? The same thing you are. Certainty. He wants certainty. And remarkably, what does Jesus do? When Jesus shows up and he reveals himself to Thomas, what's interesting, he, he, he doesn't say, Thomas, why did you question me? He doesn't say that. In fact, if you read the story, it's kind of interesting. It's in John chapter 20 if you're interested in it. Jesus actually says this. Okay, you wanted to see my hands. You wanted to see the nail holes. You wanted to put your fingers in it. Here they are. Go ahead. And it leads to one of the greatest confessions in the Bible where Thomas says, my God, my Lord. My Lord, my God. Isn't it interesting that Thomas's doubt led him to a deeper level of faith in Jesus? Thomas's doubt actually led him to a deeper confession of Jesus. He grows in his belief. See, our doubts can create room for our faith to grow. Our doubts can create room for our faith to go. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is what you need in the presence of doubts, right? Faith is something you will never have to exercise when you see Jesus face to face because your faith will be realized. You don't have to have a step of faith. You know now. Faith is what we exercise in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of those difficulties. I love how Jesus does, I love that. He doesn't say, how dare you question me? How dare you doubt me? Instead, he says, and what, what's interesting, if you read the story, he comes to the end, he says, now, now Thomas, now, now stop doubting. He comes to a place where it, doubting can be a positive thing. We grow in our faith, but then he comes to this place where he says, now, Thomas, now, now it's time to stop doubting. He's saying, look, don't give in to your doubts, Thomas. Let your doubts drive you into something deeper, more meaningful, a deeper and greater belief. And that's what the Christmas story challenges you and I to do, to drive into something more deeper, more meaningful, that we can anchor our life to. What it doesn't allow us to do is just to lean in and lean out. The Christmas story is a little alarming because it doesn't invite moderates. What do I mean by that? Can, can I have just a, a pastoral service announcement for a moment, a PSA? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Some of us in this room, we're not really skeptics. We're not really skeptics, but we're not strong Christians. We believe in God, but we're often coming to gatherings like this and we're saying, I wish I was a better Christian. I wish I was a stronger Christian. And, and in other words, we have a, a moderation with Jesus. I mean, we're not scared of Jesus. We're not, we're not maybe angry at Jesus, but we're really not sold out to Jesus. Here's the thing about the Christian walk, though. There's nothing moderate about it. 
There's no moderation with it. In fact, to follow Jesus, he invites us, and we love this verse, that Jesus promises us abundant life, right? He promises you and I abundant life when we follow Jesus. But what we don't realize, he invites us into a refining furnace to get that abundant life. And it's not comfortable all the time. But he's determined to produce in the followers of Jesus a radical love. He's determined to produce in us a fanatical kindness. He's determined to produce in us a profound peace, a generous gentleness, a selfless, sacrificial heart, and a beautiful resilience. There are no half measures for that. Instead, it requires a step of faith, a step over some of our doubts, and a step of faith of trust in order to access this, that we trust that Jesus is the Savior come in human flesh, that he paid for the sins of this world, and that we access relationship with God through him and his righteousness. There, uh, in preparation for this message, I was doing some reading, and I came across an author. He's long dead and gone. His name was Sheldon uh, Vanuken. He was a writer, a professor, a scholar. He wrote an interesting book called A Severe Mercy. He was an atheist, And actually, his friend, uh, another uh, British scholar named C.S. Lewis, led he and his wife to faith in Jesus. And it was interesting. He talks about his journey and his problem about becoming a Christian. He really struggled with this idea of becoming a Christian. And it was because he had to believe in Jesus. And he wanted to be certain before he took that step. And that all doubt would be eliminated before he took that step. He was a scientist of sorts. He was an educated man. These are his words. Let me read some of his words to you. I found them so interesting. He said, I saw the gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross that gap? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I want it proof. I want it certainty. He goes on to say, but then I realized there would have to be a leap of faith to accepting Jesus Christ because I couldn't prove that Christ was not God, that he was God, but I also had no proof that he was not God. I could not reject Jesus without great faith. I could not accept Jesus without great faith. And he said, when I came to that conclusion, I flung myself over that gap in front of me towards Jesus. Doubt can be a barrier to God, and it can also be a pathway to believing in God. See, Jesus comes to all of us in this Christmas season, just like he came to Thomas. And he says, look. Look at my hands. Look at the nail-scarred hands. Go ahead. Try me. Try me. Look at me. Walk towards me. See that I don't exceed your expectations. Come to me. Surrender everything. Everything. Lay it at my feet. And no, don't, you'll find out. And it's shocking because we don't live in this type of world, but his kingdom operates very differently. By surrendering everything, we gain everything. That, uh, that we don't lose our life or lose our freedom. We actually find true life and true freedom through that act of surrender. Maybe you've already taken that step of faith and your doubt is not about Jesus being God or salvation in him. Maybe the doubt that clouds you is the disappointment in life, the illness you're facing, the the moments or circumstances that you you wonder, is God there? (laughs) Is he there? Is he listening? Does he care? Does he love? And that gap begins to fill in with those doubts. Listen, I understand how that feels. I'm 52 years old. 
I've had many moments in my life where I've had pockets and even extended seasons that felt like it was growing more doubt than it was growing faith. Anyone been there with me? I know in those seasons, this is why actually Shelley and I have practiced throughout our life having friends from all generations. We've needed it. I love having friends that are much younger than me, people I respect, that challenge me, because they disciple and grow me. They stretch my thinking and understanding in ways that if I was just with my own cohort, I'd miss, I'd be blind to it. I love having friends that are older than me. And we have plenty of those in our lives. You know why they're so important to me? I I said this during the pandemic once to our church family. When you get around people who have been been through it all, experienced it all, and are still raising a hallelujah, that those are the kind of people I need to learn from. Because they know the hardship of life and they know what it means to depend on something and it drives them into a deeper belief and a deeper trust in the person of Jesus. On December 2nd of this month, uh, my dad stepped from this life into his best life. And I want to thank, so many of you sent nice emails and I know you're praying for our family, we felt it. Uh, last, last weekend, I was in St. John, New Brunswick, and preaching at his funeral. And you know what was so easy about it in many levels, and Pastor Keith and I talked about this, is my dad gave us a lot of good material to work with. My brothers and sisters could say a lot of profound things about him because he lived a, a good life, deeply rooted in faith. So it, was a, it was a challenge to me. It's a challenge to anyone that was there. My dad's faith was deeply important to him. In fact, but he didn't love his faith. And I wanted the people that heard that message to hear that. I wanted his grandchildren to hear that. He didn't love his faith. He loved the object of his faith. He loved Jesus. See, every one of us listening here in the room, online, every one of us is a person of faith. Whether we believe in something or that something is Nothing. And the true test of every belief system is how it holds up in the end. When death is imminent, when everything you love is getting stripped away from you, will that belief system sustain you? Will it hold you up? Can it carry you? My dad's did right to the end. I know uh, in August of this last year, I showed you a little video of my dad and I singing together. Uh, He sang an old song. If you grew up in the church, you'd know it was Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. A beautiful song of faith. When he died, I went to Twitter and I posted that video with a little few sentences about my dad. I had no idea that it would be viewed over 40,000 times within the week. I got posted, I thought, really profound things over the years. I get nothing like that. Why, Why did that take off? It wasn't because somehow my cinematography was great, because if you saw that video, you know, you would probably be saying, anyone who's a, a social media person, they go, turn the phone sideways, get both you in. Like, it's just brutal. I'm terrible with my phone. It wasn't our singing, because it wasn't particularly good. But from the comments, I knew what it was. They saw a frail man, a diminished man, with somehow an unconquerable spirit. It was as if there was this deep, faith fault in him that Alzheimer's could not crack, could not break. That's what was grabbing their hearts. That was grabbing their, their minds in that moment. It was interesting when I was just at the very end, when, when my dad was going to be with the Lord, I was on the phone with my older brother, with him present. 
And this quote came to my mind because my dad and I had had this ongoing debate throughout my life. I had, my faith journey was always filled with doubts, and my dad always walked towards those doubts. And you know what was interesting, especially if you have people in your life and you're raising children and they have doubts along the way, hey, don't try to correct them, try to understand them. And my dad only asked questions to try to understand why, Jonathan, do you believe this? Why are you in this place? It was a very kind way and a generous way to approach me and challenge me too. But we debated about this French philosopher and I thought of a quote as I watched my dad through FaceTime pass from this life into his best life. And it was this one. He said, Camus said this, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. No matter how hard the world pushes against me, within me, there's something stronger, something better, pushing right back. That invincible summer in my dad was Jesus. Didn't matter what was being stripped away. Didn't matter what Alzheimer's had done, the cruelty of it in his life. There was something invincible in him, and it was Jesus. Christmas is Jesus come, Emmanuel, God with us. It's the promise that no matter he's, what you're going through, God is with you. God is with you through that divorce. God is with you through that illness, that loss. God is with you through the loneliness and the anxiety. He never abandons you. He's always there from you. He's not intimidated by your doubts. He invites them. And, let, and then he would challenge you and say, let your doubts drive you deeper into belief and meaning and faith. And I would add, let it drive you towards Jesus, friends. He's the only person when you meet him, he will always exceed your expectations. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for the hope of Christmas. I'm so thankful, Father, that you gave your one and only son that when he came into this world, he didn't just come to display a morally perfect life, although he did live that. He didn't just come to challenge what was evil and broken because that was in all of us, God. Your word says that he loved us. He came because he loved us. That he came not to condemn us, but to bring life to us. So friends, whether you're online or in this room, I'd love to give you an opportunity to know what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. And it requires a step of faith. There's a gap between the provable and the proven. You can't prove there isn't a God, and it's hard to technically prove there is a God, even though there's many proofs. But it's always going to require a step over the gap of your doubt. And if you'd like to take that step today, I'm going to say a simple prayer, and you can pray that, and you can walk in relationship with Jesus. The prayer goes like this, and you say it in your own mind or with your own words. Jesus... I come to you now. I take that step of faith and I place my trust in you. I'm coming to, I, because I want to know you. Would you forgive me of the things that I've done and maybe I'm doing and I will do that hurt people, that hurt myself or create a barrier between you and me, would you forgive me? And instead, God, could I have Jesus' record of righteousness, the Savior of the world who paid for the sin of all humanity, 
I ask for your grace right now. Fill me with your spirit in this Christmas season that I might know what it means to move beyond a snowman and a reindeer to embrace Jesus, the author and finisher of not only my faith, all of creation. In your strong name, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.